So for those of you who were not here last week um, or who just you know, would benefit from a quick little rundown, let's recall what we talked about in week one of our study. So this is a study where we are going to march through from Genesis all the way to Revelation. You could kind of call it a survey study. It's different than anyone we've done before where we are going. The goal is to get the big picture story of the Bible. Okay. The goal is to see what theme starts in Genesis and follow that theme all the way through the Old Testament to the New Testament and end up in Revelation. So last week, we kind of jumped off this launch pad in Genesis of looking at where God fully dwelt with his people there in Eden. Okay, We looked at God's nearness and we said, why would God come near to his people? And we, we focused on two words, the transcendence of God. Our God is transcendent. That means he is above, like in the heavens and, and immeasurable, hard for us to understand or grasp, but he's also imminent. That means he is at hand. He is near. And it should blow us away that God is both of those things. We should be in awe that he is transcendent. And we should want to live holy lives because he's near. We should, we should be um, curious and reverent about how big he is because of his transcendence. And then we should be comforted and strengthened because he is near to us. We looked at the Garden of Eden closely, and we looked at how Eden and, and Genesis really cast a shadow across all of the Bible as it reminds us both what we came from, right? As Eve had that covenant nearness with God, but then it also shows us what we were made for and what we can long for as we look forward to God, for God to re-Edenize the world. That's what we saw in Genesis last week. This week, you studied Genesis thir- or Exodus 13 and 14, and that's what we're going to study tonight. And we read how God came near and dwelt with his people after they emerged from 400 years of slavery. So I want to catch us up a bit on what happened between these two weeks of study, right? That's a pretty big jump. We went from uh, early Genesis to early Exodus. What happened in there? Okay, for those of you who love Bible trivia like me, this is going to be like a real like speedy course on Bible trivia. So um, gear up. Some of this is just going to be so we can get our minds organized to know where we're jumping in to make sure that we're studying God's word in its context. Okay, so here we go. In Genesis, we read up in yeah Genesis, we read that God reveals himself to a man named Abraham, who you have probably heard about. He gives Abraham this promise. It's a promise for children and land, and he enters into a covenant with him. After many years, God's promise to Abraham comes true, and he has a son not by the works of man, but by faith. God's covenant continues up Abraham's family tree. As we see the child of promise is Isaac, and Isaac is born. Isaac is the then has a son named Jacob. Jacob then has 12 by his two wives, Rachel and Leah. The favorite of those sons was Joseph. There's a familiar story for us of the guy with the, the brightly colored coat. His brothers become jealous of him, slave, or sell him off into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt. There, because God is with him, he eventually rises to power and actually carries Egypt through a famine by his leadership, okay? So then years pass, a new pharaoh comes to power who does not know Joseph or his family or his God, and the Hebrews begin multiplying. God's people begin multiplying there in the land of Egypt, and the pharaoh says, these people are becoming too many. They might rise up against us, and so they decide to oppress them and make them slaves. Hundreds of years in slavery for God's people, and then what happens? Pharaoh uh, makes a decree that all of the sons need to be killed. They need to be thrown into the Nile, but the brave faith of two young parents save a baby named Moses. They put him in a basket, put him in the Nile River, And we know where this story goes from here, right? He ends up actually getting drawn out. That's what his name means. Moses is drawn out as a baby from the Nile River and is raised in Pharaoh's household. 
He gets raised in that environment, and then as a young man, he sees a Hebrew getting beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster, taskmaster, and so he goes and he kills that man out of righteous anger. He runs away off into the desert because he's afraid for his life, and he lives among the Midians. He is, um, gets married. His father-in-law's name is Jethro, and we see that he's living the life of a shepherd, right? So then the story picks up where Moses encounters God in the burning bush. So this is one of the first times um, that we're going to highlight this word theophany. Maybe it's a new word for some of you guys. Theophany is where God reveals himself through elements of nature. So Moses comes to this burning bush, and God reveals himself to him and and enters into a covenant with him. And what does he say to him? He says, I've got a purpose for you. You're going to go back to Pharaoh, and you're going to say, let my people go. So this is when Moses, along with his brother Aaron, travel back to Egypt. They go before Pharaoh. They they become the spokespeople for God. And in response to Pharaoh's hard heart of not wanting to let the people go, uh, God is going to send 10 plagues. The Bible describes this as God's mighty right arm, as his outstretched arm for his people. That by it, the Egyptians were judged, and eventually God's people were liberated. Do you guys catch on to that? That's the same theme we picked up on in week one, that judgment actually is a means of salvation throughout Scripture. That's one of those themes that we're going to look for in many of our weeks of study. The judgment on the Egyptians through the plagues meant freedom for God's people. Judgment from the garden for Adam and Eve actually meant their salvation so that they would not live eternally in a cursed position. Right? And then you're thinking ahead, and you're thinking, oh yeah, we're going to see this again as God puts his judgment on Jesus that we could live forever. Okay, So where we pick up our study, uh, God has been flexing for his people. That's how Matt Chandler says it. He's been flexing, showing off his mighty right arm through the plagues, and he has now freed his people. Where we picked up this week in Exodus 13 and 14, God's young pilgrims are on the first leg of a road trip, you could say. And that gets us to 13, verse 17. The way that I thought I would organize this tonight is by taking um, 13, 17 through 14, like 20, 21, and we're going to just break it up into three sections, and that's how we'll organize our talk for those of you who like to know what's coming. So listen as I read 13, starting in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So let's really consider this story. Let's really consider the Hebrews. You guys are probably picturing one movie that you've seen, right? Or, or some show that, that, and a lot of them did a good job with this, but let's make sure we're actually understanding what's going on here. When we talk about the Hebrews and the Exodus, do you realize that we are talking about up to 2 million people leaving an area all at once? Up to 2 million people, if you include women and children. And they are moving out of Egypt and into the wilderness together. And they are leaving their life, even though it's a, it's a life of slavery, it's a horrible life, but they're leaving it in haste. And we read about how they plunder The Egyptians, as they leave, the Egyptians are scared of them and give them all of their gold and their jewelry and their nice stuff. So here is this huge group of people, and their lives have changed overnight. I drew this out in the homework saying, what did did they know about God at this point? Maybe some stories had been passed down from their fathers, from their fathers, from their fathers. 
But before Moses came with this message, they had not heard from God in 400 years as a collective group of people. But now the God of their forefathers was back and he is acting for them with an outstretched arm. So they have just experienced God's might. They've experienced his power. They've, they've seen his love for justice coming out for them in the plagues. And in this first stretch of their road trip, we read that they are led by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. So we are led to ask why. Why would God come to them at this time and reveal himself in these ways? I think that, that God revealed himself to the young pilgrims, just like we talked about in Genesis, so that they would know who he was, right? So that they would learn about him and then secondarily understand who they were. And that order is very important. So God is now coming near to them primarily so that they can learn about who he is and then begin to understand about who they are and what this relationship with God was supposed to look like. What I um, learned in this study is at first I felt like the, revela- like the pillars was actually revealing something totally new about God. And I wonder if some of you did this too. Like I see the plagues and I was like, oh yeah, God is wrathful. He is dangerous if you're not on his side. He is a God that is just. But then the pillars come. Oh my goodness, the pillars. It's like God is so nice and he's so comforting and gentle. And I kind of saw this at first. It's like, oh yeah, it's just a totally, God's showing him a different side of them. And then then I started studying more. And I was like, wait, that's that's not necessarily true. It was a continuation of this revelation of God. I mean, this wasn't just like one little flame that was above, you know, Moses' head. And they were like, where is that tiny little flame? It wasn't just like a little, like, cotton ball above the people in front. And they're like, oh, there's God. Let's follow him. No, that's not what we see in Scripture. I mean, maybe at times it was like that. But most of the times in Scripture, what we read about is that this was like a towering inferno and and this cloud was probably like a a big billowing cloud and the word for it is Shekinah. Isn't that a fun word? Shekinah. We're going to use that word for the rest of the semester now. The Shekinah glory of God is what this meant. That is when God, um, when there's a manifestation of God's glory. That is what Shekinah means, a manifestation of God's glory. And the reason why we can conclude this is because we are going to see this cloud at other times in Scripture, as well as the flames. The Shekinah meaning glory, a manifestation of his glory. So the revelation of the pillar and the cloud, we're teaching, we're deepening the understanding of who God was to his people. And we see that throughout Scripture, when God reveals himself to the patriarchs, to these forefathers that we read about in the Old Testament, the reason he reveals himself is almost always tied to a covenant. So when God reveals himself, he is introducing or teaching them more about the covenant. What I mean by covenant is this agreement between two parties. So God is coming and he's saying, here's my deal. Here's my end of the deal and all these things I'm going to do for you. And here is your end of the deal. And we could do an awesome study on all the different covenants throughout the Bible, you know, the, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the Mosaic covenant we're looking at tonight, the Davidic covenant. That's a theme that goes throughout all of the Bible. But in your homework, you looked up some of these references. I took you through just a couple spots where we saw this Shekinah glory. And actually, we didn't even touch on it, but in Genesis, at the very beginning of Genesis 1, we saw the Shekinah glory when it says, and the Spirit hovered over the waters. So at creation, that was God's glory hovering over the waters. You guys went to Genesis 15 in your workbooks this week. That is when God comes to Abraham and he's going to introduce to him this covenant. And he's going to clarify certain aspects of this covenant that he's going to make with Abraham. And it seems kind of weird what he does, right? He tells him to take five animals, and three of the animals he wants Abraham to cut them in half and form two rows. And then Abraham falls asleep, or maybe is like put to sleep by God, and he sees this uh, smoking pot of fire and this 
this, how is it said, a torch of fire that passes through the cut animals. That was the Shekinah glory of God. He was revealing his glory to Abraham as he introduced the covenant to him. And if you really want a geek out moment, you might remember from past studies that the, the root word of covenant means to cut. Do you remember that from the Hosea study? What did Abraham do with the animals? He cut them. What are we uh, invited to do when we come into covenant with God? We are to cut ways with our old life. We are supposed to cut ways with death that we could pass through and and be with God in his glory, in his Shekinah glory. So there's a little trivia moment for you. Where else do we see it in our homework this week? So in Exodus, when Moses sees God in the burning bush, this, this bush is on fire, but it doesn't actually burn up. What does God say to him? He says, take off your shoes for the ground that you are standing on is holy. That's the Shekinah glory of God. And wasn't that when he's introducing to Moses, hey, here's the plan. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what you're going to do. And he shows them his glory. Little did Moses know how often he was going to get to see the glory of God. It's so fun to be able to know more than Moses knew at that time about what was coming his way. And there was nothing like mystical about that bush, right? When God's presence wasn't there on that bush, that ground wasn't holy. It was God's presence that made it holy. You guys then jumped over to the New Testament where we saw a flame again. Where did we see it? At Pentecost, right? So after Jesus' crucifixion, all these new believers are in the building. Jesus has now gone back up to heaven. And what appears on the people as the Holy Spirit anoints them? A tongue of fire appears over their head. That is an illustration of... Shekinah in the New Testament. And we'll unpack that in a couple weeks. Once again, that is the ratification of the new covenant. That is when Jesus is coming and saying, okay, things have changed. Here's what the covenant looks like now. And that's why we see it then. But we also see this cloud several times throughout scripture, right? We're not just going to see it in Exodus 13 and 14. We're going to see that it's going to settle in the tabernacle and then it will settle in the temple. We're going to see that the cloud indicates not just God's presence, but sometimes it's actually going to hide God's glory because nobody could actually behold it and live. And one time God's Shekinah glory shows up as a rebuke to God's people. And we will continue to look at those throughout the semester. So now we're going to take a close look at this next chunk of scripture. So we see that God has once again come near to his people. For what purpose? Starting in chapter 14, I'll read through verse 20. And I cannot say some of these names, so I'm not even going to pretend to. So we'll just mumble over them as quickly as we can. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharaoth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the wilderness. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants had changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took, took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pi-Hararoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, it is because there's no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? 
Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. (coughs) Excuse me. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. (coughs) Excuse me. All right. Let's dig into this. What do we see here? We see that God has started this road trip with them probably in a very unexpected way for them. We have read that God did not take his people straight from freedom over out of slavery into the promised land, right? This is what they knew. They knew the plan was to go from, hey, we're no longer slaves, and we're told that there's a land called Canaan. And we heard about it from our forefathers. We know it's for us. It is ours to have from the Lord. So wouldn't you think that the plan was to go from point A to point B as quick as possible? I mean, put yourself there. If you're a Hebrew woman, wouldn't you be ready to get some ground under your feet and get to where God has goodness for you? Wouldn't you think that that would make the most sense? I wonder what the Hebrews expected when they decided to follow God. What do you think the Israelites thought they were signing up for when they said, yes, we will follow Moses and Aaron out of slavery? I think that they thought, all right, freedom and then abundant life. And I go from here to here, and I'm going to get there quickly. It's great that we've got this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire. I'll follow it as long as it's going in a straight line to Canaan. That is what they possibly thought it meant to follow God. Is that what happened? No, we see see right away that God took them the long way. He says that he didn't take them the shortest route. Because there was these military spots there where the Philistines would have attacked them. And God's people were not soldiers, were they? They were slaves. It said that they were equipped for battle, but they had never had military experience. And so God cannot take them the shortest way because he knows that they were not ready to fight. So he takes them the long way. And I wonder if that's an opportunity for us to pause before we go any further into this setting and say, what did we expect when we signed up to follow God? What did we think we were getting ourselves into? Freedom from slavery. I'm in. That's a gimme. Canaan, that sounds good. The promised land, that sounds good. And I'm going to be, if I put myself there like one of those Hebrew women, I'm saying, all right. If I've got, I've got my kids and I've got all this swag from the Egyptian homes, I'm going to get all my stuff and I'm going to beeline for the good life in Canaan. But that's not actually what we're signing up for, is it? What we're signing up for is to follow the presence of God, to draw near to it and to let it lead us. See, the Hebrews were not given a plan. They were not given a schedule or an itinerary or a map. They were given the presence and glory of God. 
and that was to be enough. I don't know how I would have handled that situation. I mean, when I, when I think about what I expect from God, I'm all about the freedom from my oppressors. But I'm pretty efficient. I like to, to make good use of my time. And so I'm looking straight for the promised land. And my plan is to pick up a good-looking husband and clean children and firm equity on the way. And I'm going to get there to the good life. That's not true. That's not what we see from God's first revelation to his corporate people. He is saying, the plan is, you follow me. Could we become women who bravely walk the long road? Could we be women who are okay with the long road from God? Could we be women who say with the psalmist, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. Yeah, we don't have the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, but we have his word and we have his spirit. And that is what guides us each day. So many times I want to take that psalm and say, your word should be a big old beam for my path. I want to know not just what the plan is for tomorrow, but what the plan is for 10 years from now. If I'm willing to take this step with you, God, then you better promise me that this grand plan for 10 years down the road is going to work out. If I have faith here and I start making this deal with God, then you better make sure all my expectations are met along the way and that we get to the promised land, the good life, quickly. Our invitation from this week of study is to, to be okay with the long road because often, ladies, that is the road God has for his children. We don't know what he's protecting us from. The direct route to get all that we want in life, there might be many things on that route that will hurt us, that will trip us up. It's on that long road that we discover who God is, that we start to understand his character as he reveals himself to us. And then we start to understand our identity. Then we understand who we are as his daughters. And until we figure those two things out, we'll never get to the promised land. I mean, that's when real freedom and joy come is when we know him and know that he knows us. Can we be women who gear up for the long road and who have faith to follow his presence? Because sometimes the long road can even take a turn for the worse. Sometimes the long road that is ordained by God sometimes leads us to a rock and a hard place. Because here in chapter 14, we see that it is God who led them to the sea. It is God who led them to the sea, and it is God who hardened Pharaoh's heart to come after them. These are not easy truths to read and to work through. I wonder if you guys struggled with that this week as you looked at that. It is God who has, who has ordained that these slaves, these people who have been abused and oppressed and who have, feel forgo- have felt forgotten by God, he is now saying what is good for you is wilderness. And then what is good for you is a crisis. I'm going to lead you to the sea. And then I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that your enemies are coming after you. And not just your enemies, but your enemies who want vengeance. They are angry. And that is where God's people find themselves in Exodus 14. They are standing here and the the waters are behind them and their enemies are in front of them. They are between a rock and a hard place, and it is because Yahweh has ordained it. What do we do with that? How do we make sense of this? Why would God do this? Well, his word tells us if we continue to study this. 
See, what God is doing is that he is clearing the stage for his glory. He's clearing the ring so that he can have a showdown with Pharaoh. See, Pharaoh, who has totally disrespected God, is still alive back in Egypt. He's, it's almost like, to an extent, he's gotten away with totally taking God on and defying him. God is going to clear the ring so that he will get glory and so that his people might see their salvation. This is the same Pharaoh who back in Exodus 5 says to Moses, who is the Lord? That is not Pharaoh saying, all right, tell me more. I want to learn. That's not what's going on there, right? He's saying, who is the Lord? I am. I am the Lord, so I don't even know who you're talking about. What does God say here? He says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And then again, later on, he says, Pharaoh will know that I'm the Lord. He is throwing that back at Pharaoh. Who is the Lord? Oh, Pharaoh, you're going to know who is the Lord. That is why God is setting the stage like this. That Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the Hebrews might know who is the Lord. The Annie essentially has been upped now where God is going to reveal himself to all of these people. What did the Hebrews know at this moment? What did the Hebrews need at this moment? Once again, put yourself there. Put, make yourself a Hebrew woman there. Amidst the two million people, you are there, the waters are there, the angry enemies are there. What do you need to know at that time? Well, I feel like if it was in this day and age, unfortunately, Probably what someone would do is show her a pretty Instagram that says, the Lord will never give you anything more than you can handle. Right? Is that not what we give to each other so often in this soft Instagram Bible age? Like, God will never give you more than you can handle. Is that what she needs? Are you picturing this? This huge body of water here surrounded by two million Young pilgrims, not soldiers. And there is, it says, all of Pharaoh's army. All of them. God will not give you more than you can handle? There is nothing about this situation that the Hebrews could handle. Nothing. There was not a road out. They were hemmed in, ordained by God for God's glory and for the purpose of salvation. Salvation cannot happen until there is no other way out, until we cannot handle it. And we say, I, I have no other option but you, God. So what does Moses say to the people? He says that God will fight for them. How does God go and fight for them? Well, we saw in our workbooks that it says that God's presence moved from out front to moving behind them. I don't know if you had ever noticed that before, but until I really slowed down and studied this this summer, I never noticed that. The pillar of, of fire and the pillar of cloud, it went from being in front of the caravan to going behind, to being their rear guard. And did you catch that it also said the angel of the Lord moved from up front from to behind? And we could go off on who is this angel, but there, there's a good chance that that was the pre-incarnate Christ. That was Jesus leading the way. For, for tonight's sake, we're going to say the angel who is the Lord. They move from in front to behind, and that is how he is going to fight for them. I feel like the verse that we read here is a pretty familiar verse, right? It's a good, comforting verse. Like, you need only be still. The Lord will fight for you. But now we get to zoom in and really look at what is the Bible saying here? It says that he moves behind them. What we must conclude then is that they needed guarding more than they needed leading at that time. So they needed protected from evil. They needed a barrier between them and the evil that was coming against them. Why did they need this? 
Well, remember, they're young on this journey. They don't really know who they are as God's children yet. They're starting to maybe pick up on bits of it. And they are just starting to learn who God is. God was silent for 400 years. There was a lot of Bible studies that needed to happen before they would understand who he was. And so because of that, they were vulnerable to their enemy, right? They were vulnerable to that enemy coming and attacking. They weren't ready to fight back, and that is why God would come and fight for them. And we see from their response to Moses, right? So something that prompts fear comes, comes up, and, and what do they say? Wouldn't it have been better if we just stayed in Egypt? So this is why I'm saying they didn't understand who they were yet. Obviously, it hadn't clicked to them that it was better to be God's children than to be slaves of Egypt, slaves of Pharaoh. Because all it took was one moment of doubt, and they're like, okay, where's my white flag? I'm walking towards Egypt. I'd rather, I'd rather die there. I'd rather be a slave there than have to keep following this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire that I don't really know that much about. And God is saying, no, these are my people. I will create a barrier so that they won't fall back into the chains that they've been living in, that they're used to, that maybe they're even more comfortable as slaves than as my children. And so God's presence comes and it separates them and keeps them away from the advancing army. It separates them from their growing desire to return to what they already know. Are we not in that same place? Do we not have times where we need God's presence to come and to put a barrier between us and our sin? Maybe it's the life we had before Christ that in a moment of fear, we're like, oh, that was, that was just easier. When I wasn't fighting against anything, it was just easier. We talked about that with 1 Peter this summer. Like the Christian life is constantly fighting against what feels natural. And clearly what felt natural to God's people was to just go back to slavery. And we want to do the same thing. When we see no road out and we are trapped between rock and a hard place and the road has been long and we're not really confident that God actually has a plan for us, we just want to go back. Maybe it's a sin, it's a habit, it's an addiction that, that if not for God's presence to come and to create a wall of fire there, we will go right back to it. We need God sometimes to move from out front leading to come behind, that we will not return to the ways that want to kill us, so that we will not return to the sins that will lead to our destruction. Do you need to ask God to come and to be your rear guard so that his presence will be a barrier between you and the sins that want you dead, the influences that want you dead, the chains that want to hold you down? What other presence did, or what other purpose did God's presence serve in this scene? We saw here in chapter 14 that God's presence revealed the condition of hearts. I had to uh, look very closely to see this this summer. Verse 20 is talking about, I'll back up to verse 19. The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. I don't really see it right away in the ESV. In the NIV, it says it a little bit more clear. What, what is happening here is that the angel and the pillar have moved behind. And on the side of the Egyptians, it is dark. And they are confused. On the side of God's people, it is light. Why is that? Well, God is, is saying the, heart, the hearts that are hard against him, he's going to throw into confusion, and it's going to be darkness, and it's going to be night, and they're not going to be able to move or to work against him. But for God's people, for God's treasured possession, his presence means light so that his people can move ahead so that his people could move ahead and get ground between them and their enemy. 
See, God's presence reveals the condition of our heart. And while I don't think any of us have hard hearts in the sense like Pharaoh and the Egyptians did, because you're here and you're wanting to study God's word and be in community, I do think that it's still worth us asking the question, do we have hard hearts? What does God's presence reveal about us? So something we talked about on Tuesday, an analogy that that kind of fit for us, is consider what God's presence does to you. What comes out of you when you encounter God's presence? Do you act like um, a a one-and-a-half-year-old? So think of a cute little one-and-a-half-year-old that you know. When that one-and-a-half-year-old sees their mom, what do they do? They come near, right? Mom's presence is something to draw near to. They feel joy, they feel comfort, and they feel safe. And so they draw near to that presence and feel secure. How does a 15-year-old girl on her period act when her mom walks into the room? How dare you? Get out of my space. Cold shoulder, hard heart. I want distance. I'm going to squirm. Don't touch me. Don't love me. Your presence makes me uncomfortable. We've all been there, right? Okay, so maybe that doesn't work for you. Maybe you need another illustration. So the prayer for us this semester is that God's presence, that we would respond like a lab, like like a puppy. When When their owner comes home, what does that puppy do? No matter how long the owner's been gone. Oh my goodness, I love you, 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 right? Oh, I just want to do everything with you. I'm going to sit right on you. I'm going to bring you things. I'm going to bring you my offering of, you know, like a ball or a toy. I love you. And they draw near. And they never want to get away. They want that. They want to even get closer to that owner. Could that be us with God's presence? Or are we going to be a cat? (laughs) Are we going to be a cat? You know where I'm going. That owner comes home and that cat's like, meow, I don't need you. And oh, oh, unless I want some love. And if I'm a cat, I'm gonna come up and I'm gonna rub all on you, thinking I'm all that, and you're gonna start loving on me, and then I'm gonna bite you! Because I don't like the way you're loving on me. I don't like the way you're pushing me. Because they have hard hearts, right? How do we respond to God's presence in our life? What does it reveal about us? Does it make us uncomfortable? Does community make us uncomfortable sometimes? Because we have parts of our heart that, that would rather be in Egypt still, that would rather still be in those chains. We're not really sure if it was really all that bad there. What does his presence bring up and out of us? Do we draw near to it? Do we take that invitation and come near to him Because we're understanding how good he is, not just because we want something from him. God's presence does reveal what's going on in our heart. And if we're hard towards him, especially if it's like the Egyptians, there is darkness and there is confusion. But we are his daughters, and so his presence can mean life to us. And what that allows us to do when we are in his presence, is to get some distance between us and our sin. Get some distance between us and our old way of life. We need to move on. We need to get some mud in our sandals as we move towards Canaan, towards that promised land of what God has for us. What else did God's nearness create in this account I see that it created an opportunity for faith. So from the scene at the Red Sea, we see that God's presence doesn't nullify our need for great faith, but it is actually intended to stretch our faith and to mature our faith. So with God's presence behind them, that meant that they had to cross the Red Sea without that pillar in front of them. Do you see that? Like if the direction is this way and the pillar's there and the waters have been split, their job is to get moving while God is lighting their way, making it light on their side. They need to move on. They needed to display faith. Do you think that that was easy at that time? I mean, 
those huge walls of water, not really knowing that much about God or how much he loved you or really what your identity was, like going through the Red Sea, as cool and exciting as it was, would still have been terrifying, right? They needed to respond to the presence of God by having faith, by believing that he was going to be enough and they needed to move forward. Often I think that we think that God's nearness is just this opportunity to cuddle up, to cuddle up and get all cozy with God and just sit in our own little Christian world where we can just kind of keep every, all of our expectations nice and neat on our way of life as we are comfortable with. But that's not the example we see here. His presence intends for us to go forward to get some ground under us and to become his children as we move towards our promised land, as we move towards our Canaan being heaven. His promise, his closeness, it should kick us in the pants to get moving, to be ready for an adventure. But what do we do when it's just not that simple? What do we do when we're moving on and we still have fear? We still have doubt. I mean, for two weeks in a row now, we've seen that a moment of doubt, if mixed with confusion about who God is, it leads us to do some really stupid things, right? It led Eve that question of doubt mixed with, you know, a weak understanding of who God was, it, it made her reach out and take the fruit, which was really taking the throne of God. We see the, the Israelites here feeling doubt because there is no way out of this situation and not really knowing who God was quite yet. They were ready to go back to slavery. They were ready to go back to oppression and beatings and no freedom. What do we do in that situation? We're doing everything we can to mute out the doubts. We're pressing on to, to know God. We're reading the Bible. We're coming to Bible study so that we might know him. But it's still hard to move on on what we know he's asked us to do. Maybe it's a big dramatic leap of faith. Maybe it's staying committed to actually like being in community. Maybe the road that you're walking that you know you're supposed to move on in is, is obedient. It's just a new level of purity, of pure motives, of honesty. What do we do? We still get to look back. As our, as our cadence moves us forward, the strategy is to look back and see God's presence there, right? We walk through the Red Sea, and when we get scared or uncertain, we look back and we see his presence, and we let it reassure us. So that means that you look back on a past season of life when God was faithful, and you say, oh, yeah, he was enough then. And then you keep moving forward in obedience. And then you look back again and you're like, oh yeah, he helped me become victorious over that sin. He healed me from that hurt. He was enough then. And we keep looking back. I gave you guys one Spurgeon quote in your study, but I have another one for us here from that same sermon. <clears throat> so bear with me as... Obviously, his, his language is a little bit archaic, but also beautiful. He says, what is more, these people had God so near that they could see him if they did but look back. Earnestly, I desire you to think of this. If you cannot see the Lord right before you and you are very dull and heavy, then I pray you, look back back and see how the Lord has helped you hitherto. Sit not down with your eyes shut, but look back. Steadily observe the past. What see you there? Loving kindness and tender mercy and nothing else. 
Ladies, I pray you look back and see how the Lord has helped you hitherto. Sit not down with your eyes shut, but look back. Let's steadily observe the past. What see you there? What see you there? Loving kindness, tender mercy, and nothing else. Great is his faithfulness. We can move on. We can become obedient women who are pressing on to know him because we can look back and know that he has always been there. He is always the same. He is never changing, and we are his people. And his presence is with us. We need to move on in our life. What is it in your life? You need to leave those chains in the past. You need to leave that rebellion. You need to leave that watering down of sin, that addiction, that bad habit. How about that unbelief? Leave it back there and get moving on. You are God's daughter, and he is with you, and he has a purpose for you. He did not just save you to save you, just like the Israelites. He saved them that he might sanctify them that they might find their purpose, right? We are not just plucked out of our Egypt and then left to be alone. No, we saw this week how merciful God was. That he doesn't, he's not just there for the big dramatic rescue, the salvation after the plagues, but that salvation, it flows right into the sanctification of the desert, Right? We need to know him, not just in the moments of drama and high intensity, but we need to remain close to him in the mundane days of faithfulness and walk with him there in the long road, the road where we feel like that person we're praying for is never going to change, that road where we feel like God has said no 200 times that road that feels lonely and scary because he will be enough for us there. See, this exodus where we see where God dwelt with his people, it points to a greater exodus, doesn't it? It points to our exodus from slavery, from sin. We are not saved by the blood of lambs and, and from a literal Egypt, but we are saved from death and condemnation. We do not pass through the waters of the Red Sea, but we pass through the waters of baptism. We're not headed for just Canaan. We're not just headed for the good life. But like we heard this morning, we, we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. That is our Canaan. That is our promised land. It is the blood and it is the waters that came from Jesus' side as he hung on the cross. That is what this story points to. That is both our salvation and our sanctification as women. Let's celebrate it and let's draw near to that presence.